Well, my name is Goody Bell. I'm one of the associate pastors here along with Dave. And let me add my welcome to his. It's such a privilege to be gathered in the name of Jesus. And if you come in his name, you belong here, whether it's your first Sunday or your 500th or more Sunday, Ray. So let me tell you about a little trip I took. I went to California, but I kept my watch on North Carolina time. Maybe some of you are doing something similar this morning. So whenever I wanted to know what time it was, I had to look at my watch, and then I'll admit I had to think a little bit harder than I wanted to. A part of being a Christian is learning how to tell time. As we come to worship this morning, we come really to reset and recalibrate our internal clock. You may have come to church today thinking that the most important information is that it's 8.55, you got 30 minutes, preacher, or that it's football season, or that it is two days after Black Friday. But according to the church calendar, we are in fact, well, somewhere between the resurrection and return of Jesus, and we are on the first Sunday of the Advent season. Advent is not a season that is marketed to us by the retail sales industry, so you're not going to find any Advent kitsch in the one spot at Target. But Advent is an observance that's offered to us by the church in its wisdom. The word Advent means arrival. So for four Sundays leading up to the celebration of Christmas, we look back to remember the arrival of the Christ child, and we look forward to anticipate the return of the risen Lord. We allow God's past action and our future hope to reorient our present longings, our waiting. And, well, if we do this well, it might take us a little bit longer, actually, to figure out what time it is. We might find that we're, on the one hand, more correctly oriented to the time of God and more disoriented when we go to the store. Our guide this Advent season will be the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is prophetic literature. It's a patchwork of warnings and words of hope. And the book's words and images took on new significance for the followers of Jesus as they read it because they saw the life and death of their Lord being described on its pages. We are going to look at some of those most beloved and famous Isaiah texts during Advent and Christmas. This morning, our text is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When somebody finds it, holler out what page it's on. 680, 680 in some Bibles. Let's listen again to the word of the Lord. This is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw 
concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. More people died in war from 1900 to 2000 than in any other time for which we have record. By some estimates, 187 million people were victims of war. That's about 10% of the world's population in 1913. Now, along with other factors, it was the incredible technological innovations of the 20th century that allowed for such unprecedented mass bloodshed. Airplanes, advanced firearms, atomic bombs, these all changed the nature of warfare. And, it seems, there is no going back, is there? But the prophet Isaiah has a vision. We just read it. Isaiah sees the end of war. It's a vision that could light our way through dark times. Let's look closely with him. First, Isaiah sees the temple of the Lord exalted. Jerusalem was considered a city on a hill, but in the prophet's imagination, the hill rises up out of the earth and begins to tower above all other mountains. Once, Jerusalem was a provincial holy site that was under perpetual siege. Now the temple becomes a beacon of wisdom for the world. The steady stream of foreign invaders bre breaching the city's wall gives way to a rush of worshipers. And from a distance, we see with Isaiah the crowds ascending the mountain. The pilgrims come not just from Israel, but from the nations. Outsiders who are ignorant of Israel's history and worship make their way to her holiest places. Foreigners walk together. Strangers journey side by side. People of different languages and background, 
people of different origin and skin tone, people of different customs and cultures are all united by a common desire. And in case this is hard for us to imagine, the prophet puts us near enough to overhear their exhortation to one another. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. They are united in a common desire to know God. What is incredible is that there is no coercion in this scene. Isaiah does not see a train of captives being assimilated to a common empire. There are no war horses thundering behind the crowds, driving them on. This is not the scene of Israel's revenge. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. God told Abraham that God would bless all nations through him. And Isaiah sees it. He sees all nations go to the temple of the God of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. But not only do they go, they go to learn. As a French major, I had the opportunity to study abroad and while in France, I got to visit some incredible cathedrals. And I'll never forget huffing up the hill the Sacre Coeur in Paris and having this worshipful moment, I hoped, looking out over the lighted city of Paris. But then I was jostled by the groups of tourists. People come from all nations not to worship, but to get a selfie. But Isaiah's vision is no photo op. The nations are neither carousing for plunder nor simply out on a scenic hike. They want to walk in the ways of the Lord. People want to know God. The teaching of God, which was entrusted to Israel, is now extended to outsiders, and they receive it. The nations submit to the word of the Lord and to the Lord's judgment. And although disputes continue, which is interesting, the people give up their weapons. They transform their technologies of domination into the means of cultivation. They turn their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, and they return to their created purpose to till and keep the earth for going forever, the art of war. Come, the prophet cries out to his listeners, calling them back to the present. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. How do we walk in the light of the Lord in a world that is plagued by war? First, we do not downplay or ignore violence or its effects around us. As we gather this morning, we know that war rages in the Ukraine. The people of Taiwan prepare themselves for the possibility of armed conflict with China. Iran and the US are in open disagreement about the enrichment of uranium for nuclear weapons. And stateside, we struggle to care for our veterans returning from duty each week it seems, brings the news of another mass shooting among civilians. 
And some of us have lived with the threat of violence in our own families and homes. We do not downplay or ignore violence or its effects on those around us. Nor does the church claim for herself the ability to bring peace on earth. The history of the church is just too stained with the blood of her neighbors. But as the war-weary world staggers between optimism and human progress and pessimism and pragmatism to denial and despair, the church does this. We cling to hope. We inch forward in the light of Christ. For it is Christ's death and resurrection that reassure us that Isaiah's vision was more than just a dream. God has not left the world to destroy itself. Rather, he has made himself a victim of our violence. Christ was a casualty of political maneuvering made possible by occupation and war. But after being put to death on a cross, he returned from the grave proclaiming what? Peace. Peace even to those who denied him and abandoned him. Because this God reigns, we can glimpse alongside Isaiah a time when war will give way to peace. Now, although the word peace does not explicitly appear in this passage, the text vividly illustrates the Hebrew understanding of peace or shalom, the kind of peace that Jesus offered to us. Shalom is more than the absence of conflict. It is right relationship. Think about the picture Isaiah shows us. It is nations coming to know God. It is warring people becoming co-pilgrims. It is nurturing life with the God-given creation and not taking it with the sword. Peace means more than laying down our arms. During World War I, the Pope requested a Christmas truce, but he was denied. Yet in 1914... At night, somewhere in the forest of Belgium, a German soldier began belting out carols just feet away from the English trenches. A British machine gunner, Bruce Barnesfather, writes in his diaries that he recalls hearing a voice with a thick German accent say, Come over! And someone on his side say, You come halfway! Cautiously, soldiers emerged and met at a barbed wire barrier between the two sides, singing and exchanging hugs and handshakes. For a moment, an impromptu holiday party erupted on the battlefield. But the next day, shelling resumed, and there was not another Christmas truce in the Great War. This was an incredible moment! And yet we know from what followed that it was incredible, but it was less than peace. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said to his followers, for they will be called children of God. What does it mean for us to be peacemakers as we wait for the end of war and the peace of Christ? While peace demands more than laying down our defenses, it demands that we retrain our hearts and retool our weapons. Even as followers of Jesus, we know the arts of war. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We may remain out of direct conflict, but we are nonetheless skilled in practices of coercion, manipulation, bitterness, the kinds of practices that allow violence to occur. Think about the original 12, Jesus' closest disciples. They not only carried swords and were ready to use them, but they also carried suspicion in their hearts against the Romans, but also against one another. And the same temptation plagues the church, as the Apostle Paul's letters attest. Christ has offered us his spirit to remove from us bitterness and to retrain our hearts to love and to forgive. This is a part of what it means to be peacemakers. Where have you stopped dreaming about right relationship and settled instead for a stalemate? Where is Jesus calling you to seek peace and not just avoid conflict? Ironically, peacemaking may begin with an uncomfortable confrontation and the admission of a hard truth. But the outcome could be what we see in Isaiah, an opportunity to retool our weapons of war and to nurture life together. On a personal level, this may mean you retrain your biting tongue to speak words of blessing, or you use your menacing strength to build and not break. As a people, it means that we enlist our best technologies to nurture and not to harm. This requires a community's creativity, discernment, and always restraint. What can the sword become? What can or should this technology accomplish? After World War II, decommissioned explosive factories began producing synthetic fertilizer. And on the surface of it, that sounds like a perfect example of turning swords into plowshares. But that's not the case, is it? In actuality, we put the, turned the weapons of war against the very ground by which God sustains us. We put to death not only harmful pests, but also unseen essential microbes that feed us. No one of us can discern what right relationship looks like on our own. Faithful witness to the peace of Christ 
turns out to be so much more than being non-confrontational and nice. It requires our, the heart, soul, mind, and strength of the whole people of Christ, of God. How can we enlist our resources to nurture life and foster right relationship here in Durham? What does it mean to reflect the peace of Christ on the corner of Iredell and Perry? Isaiah saw the end of war. His vision was either a pipe dream or a promise. It all depends on what time it is. Let's pray together. We do pray together, come Lord Jesus, and bring us your peace. Bring your peace to our broken hearts. Bring your peace to our hurting world. And most of all, bring your peace in your person, the one in whom mercy and justice come together. We cry out for you, Lord. Amen.